0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Chinese History Podcast. I'm Gregory Sattler, the host for today's episode. On this episode, we welcome to our show, Lina Nye, who is a PhD candidate at the University of Southern California's Department of History. Lina earned her bachelor's degree at the University of Hong Kong and her master's degree at Harvard University. Lina's research is focused on the history of East Asia, with a particular emphasis on maritime, diplomatic, military and cultural exchanges. So thank you very much, Lena, for joining us.
1: Thank you so much, Greg, for your generous introduction. And it's my great honor to be here today to share my research project with our audience.
0: All right. So last year we were on a panel together for the Western Conference of the Association of Asian Studies which was somewhat of a starting point for this podcast. At the time, I recall that you gave a fascinating talk on East Asian diplomacy during the Mongol invasions. Could you please talk a little more about your paper, your conference paper?
1: Sure. Thank you so much for your kind words and warm encouragement. So the talk that I gave on AS regional conference last year is actually one part of my dissertation project which I aim to examine the diplomatic and commercial exchanges among the Mongol Empire, Kholiu, Song China, and Kamakula, Japan in the 13th century. So actually, the Mongol evasions of Japan in 1274 and 1281, one of the most significant historical events in the Maritime East Asia sphere in the 13th century. So by joining from different primary sources, from the Mongols, Korea, and Japan, and China, my project demonstrated a lengthy negotiation process among Kubilai, his Chinese advisors, and Koryu kings, the Kamakula shogunate, and Koryu court before the first invasion. Why does it matter? When we examine the various strategies that the Mongol rulers used in these diplomatic conversations, it becomes very clear that in addition to the constant military conquest and warfare, a stereotype that people usually have towards the Mongols, the Mongol Empire actually took a much more flexible and complex agenda in its empire expansion. And moreover, the internal strife and disagreement between those groups should show that merely focusing on the Mongol Empire and Japanese government as if the invasion was a result between two political entities is not adequate to describe the complexities of the Mongol invasion. Therefore, looking at how different players reacted and responded in those negotiations, my project tries to move away from the constraints imposed by the boundaries and identities of modern nation states. So we can better understand and study East Asia and world history.
0: Wow, that's really interesting. You make a a great point that the invasion did not simply involve the Mongol Empire and Japan, but there were other actors as well. Could you talk a little bit more about these other actors and maybe also about the kind of geopolitical dynamics of East Asia at this time?
1: So this actually is a very complicated, but also important question, because as my projects demonstrate, the geopolitical situation in each of the regime closely influenced their reactions and strategies when they dealt with diplomatic affairs. So here, I will briefly discuss these dynamics from maybe three general aspects. Kubilai's overseas expansion in Song, China military rule in Korea at the time, as well as the dominance of the Hojil clan during the Kamakula period. But again, this is a very general observation, and the detailed circumstances were much more nuanced and complicated. So when it first comes to the Kubilai's overseas expansions in Song China, we know that in the 13th century, the land in South China was fertile and the population was abundant. So there were some minor clashes between the Mongols and Song China from 1260 onward. One of the most important battles was actually the Battle of the Xiangyang. It was fought between 1268 to 1273, and it was the longest campaign in the war and proved to be the most critical. So The Chinese built very stable fortifications there, but later in 1272, two very clever Muslims came and they built a weapon that was capable of um, throwing huge rocks over a very considerable distance. So with such strong military support, the Mongols could eventually take the city and the remaining song forces were unable to withstand the enemy troops. And later, in 1279, the Mongol fleets chased the Song fleets off the Leizhou Peninsula. And on the 19th day of the third month, surrounded by the Mongol armies, the famous Song loyalist Lu Xiu-Fu actually held the child emperor in his arms and joined into the sea. And we should understand this not from a new scene, because actually a very similar things happened to the Antoku Tenno as well. The second aspect comes to the military rule in Kholu. So actually, since the late 1150s, Kholu went through several waves of military coups, and the political situation was very unstable. In addition, the imperial authority has been severely challenged. As prominent scholars such as Adwo demonstrates. after the 1170 military coup against Tong, the military affairs had been supervised by important military generals, such as Yi wei as well as others. And later, when another military general, Cui Chung Hong, came to power, he actually pursued a dual administration which was to support the dynastic military units at the same time in strengthening and building up his own private forces. Actually, his private forces consisted of three major forces and one of the three, Yapyoto. And the Yapyoto later involved into the Senpyoto, the three patrols, and it played a very important role in the Mongol evasions of Japan. So in addition, actually, Choi also nurtured retainers who showed their personal loyalty to himself. In such a way, actually, we can see in the 13th century, actually, the, the political situation in Kuala has largely been militarized and the military governors exercised great influence, not only diplomatic, but also domestic affairs. So in the third month of 12. Fifty-eight, and the first detectator of the Chiu regime called Choe was actually killed by another military general called King Jin. So Kubila's brother, elder brother, uh, Monko, actually uses these turbans as an excuse to send troops. This show of arms actually eventually lead to the submission of the Kholiu, and signaled by the arrival of a hostage, Khron Chun, at the Mongolian court. In this way, actually the Kholiu court had exhibited its submission and demonstrated their loyalty to Kubilai, And the practice of sending hostage actually continued after generations. And the last part I wish to talk about come to the question of geopolitical dynamics of East Asia in 13th century. It's about the dominance of the Hojo clan in the Kamakula period. So we know that in the medieval period of Japan, the imperial power was highly divided, and there was a fierce competition among retired monarchs, warriors, temples, region families, and other players. So the early 12th century actually marked the peak of the Taira family, whose power was significantly strengthened after the 1152 Hogan disturbance and 1160 Heiji disturbance. But later, the power transition happened from the Taira to Minamoto. Of course, this process was not linear and was very unstable. But nonetheless, in 1185, the Taira Klein was eliminated at Tan no Ula, and later Yoritomo fought against his brother Yoshitsune and won the war at Northern Oshio and established the Kamakula Shogunate. Actually, when we talk about the warrior governance in Japan, Yoritomo's government was not purely warrior-dominated as he actively sought to befriend Kyoto nobles such as Kujo Kanetane. Such political marriage brought tremendous benefits of enhancing Yoritomo's status. However, after he passed away and also his wife Hojo Masako died, the political structure within the Kamakura went through some profound changes. Now, the government was largely controlled no longer by the shogunate, but by the shogunate regent Shiken, and the co-signer, Lensho, together with 11 selected members of board of councillors, shu, who mostly came from the Hojo family. And at the same time, the Hojo clan gradually increased their power within Kamakura and outside. With Hojo's clients increased political power and their reforms, the main lane of Hojo, which we call Toksō gradually gained dominance in the warrior government and began to pursue an even more aggressive stance to consolidate their leadership. For example, according to a Japanese scholar, Mulai Shosuke, he notices that in 1265, number of board of counselors who came from the Hojo clan doubled. And in 1266, Hojo Tokimune, the leader of the warrior government at the time, ordered to banish Prince Munetaka for conspiring with Nagoe line against the Hojo mainland. So in such a way, the aggressive pursuit of power was accomplished by the mainland of the Hojo, even though there were lots of competitions and also risks and challenges as well. So that's basically about the geopolitical situation of the East Asia of the 13th century. As we can tell, Kubilai was in the process of expanding his empire, but his expansions did not go unchallenged and he had to compete against lots of rivals um, as well as encountered lots of difficulties. And for the Koryu court at the time, the military rule has been a very important and prominent topic. And for the Kamakura period, Japan, and the rise of mainland of Hojo in 1230s to 1260s became one important topic at the time. And all those domestic situations heavily influenced their diplomatic strategies when it comes to the Kubilai's interaction with them.
0: So clearly it was a very complicated diplomatic political situation that was going on while Japan was being invaded. I just want to clarify. So were there still elements of Song resistance to the Mongolians at the same time that Mongolia was invading Japan? Or had all of Song China been conquered at that point?
1: Actually, that's a very great question, because one major argument in my projects argue that Actually, it was in the 1260s that Kubilai started to show a very keen and deep interest in Japan. And that time was actually a crucial period where Kubilai was busy fighting against the song. So why did Kubilai got interest in Japan at this particular moment? One of the hypotheses that I gave is because Japan produced and sold tremendous quantities of sulfur. To Dong China. And we know that sulfur was a very important ingredient for making gunpowder at the time. So, for Kubilai, if he could cut off the trading link between Japan and Southern Song at the time and persuade Japan into selling the sulfur to the Mongols or maybe submitting the sulfur into the Mongols, he could make the Mongol troops benefit tremendously, both economically and also militarily. In this context, we can see that actually Kubilai's strategy towards Japan was also closely interlocked with his strategies and also his military campaigns against the southern Song. It's a chain of interactions rather than isolated historical events.
0: Wow, that is really interesting. So at the time, sulfur was a strategic resource in war, Perhaps something somewhat comparable to how oil is in today's current climate as the war between Russia and the Ukraine is currently going on. Now, I would also like to follow up that question with a question about whether or not you think that because the Song Dynasty was posing a vigorous resistance to the Mongolians, do you think that the Japanese leadership might have viewed... Some forces as allies or as friendly throughout this ordeal?
1: That's a great question. So, based on the primary sources that I have read, it seems that there I have not found a direct communication between the high leaders within the warrior government in Kamakula, say the Hojo family with the Song court, but nonetheless, we can speculate that the Hojo clan's attitude towards Song immigrants, such as those monks, were highly sympathetic. For example, the very famous Zen monk called Lanxi Daolong, he traveled to Japan to escape the Mongol invasions, and actually he won the great support from the Hojo government, and he was able to become a leader of a local temple called Kenchoji at the time. And his close interactions with Hojo leaders actually heavily influenced how the Hojo clients perceived the Mongols as some groups of being uh, barbaric, also untrustworthy, and also not necessary to collaborate with. So in such a way, we can see even though the Hojo leaders connection with the Song was not direct, but nonetheless actually become very alert to the Mongols uh, because of these close and also shared beliefs in Buddhism, but as well as the interactions.
0: I think your arguments are very convincing on on this point. And it also brings me to mind during the invasions, I, I recall that the Japanese actually spared the Chinese troops. They actually singled out the Chinese troops and spared them from being killed after they were captured, unlike the rest of the Mongolian forces, which kind of makes me think that maybe this sentiment was still carrying on, because at that point, these Chinese groups that were fighting with the Mongolians, they were forced to do so. This was after most of China, or perhaps almost all of China, had already been conquered. So I think what you say, it certainly sounds convincing to me. Now, I'd like to move on to the topic of primary sources, and I would like to ask you if you could give us some insight on the documents that you are using uh, to support your arguments here.
1: Sure. So because of the nature of my project, which was uh, trying to examine the diplomatic exchanges among different regimes, so I need to go over many different sources from different sites. And to be more specific on the Mongolian side, I have been read like official histories, such as history of the Yuan but also, I read uh, the Secret History of the Mongols, which is a very important piece of primary sources that was written after Chinggis Khan died in 1227. And also, I have used a literati notes, which they shared a very interesting perception of how they felt living under the Mongol rule at the time. Then, on the Koliu side, I have used the official history called Koliu Sa as well as the noble diaries and imperial edicts. For example, the prime minister of the time, a guy called Li Zhang actually he wrote several imperial edicts to the Koryo king, but as well as Kubilai, and trying to explain the difficult situation the Koryo was at the time, so that uh, the Koryo court could shoulder less responsibility when it comes to invasions of Japan, which is quite interesting and fascinating to read. And then on the Japanese side, I have been using sources such as azuma Kagami and also court diaries and shogunal documents and religious praying texts. And this is pretty rich in terms of covers, not only like how the Hojo client reacted to the Mongol invasion, but also it mentions how the government invited and sometimes forced the religious institutions like Buddhism's monks to pray for the defeat of the Mongols during this time. So it's very comprehensive. Sometimes I need to go through several sources to compare and contrast. And finding the differences and the different attitudes that they exhibited during these diplomatic exchanges actually is very fascinating and also it illustrates and demonstrate how different parties portray a single same event in different perspectives based on their own interests and agenda.
0: I see. So all of this work, this is going to be presented in your PhD dissertation, correct?
1: Yes, that's what I'm aiming for. So I finished this chapter, but there are three, maybe three or four remaining chapters that I try uh, to focus on. But in addition to that, I also wish to go- travel to Japan to collect some archival and archaeology evidence to make the project more comprehensive. Because it's very important for me to make the project going beyond just text reading and use more diverse primary sources as much as I can.
0: I'm certainly looking forward to reading that dissertation. Now, I'd like to ask how your dissertation, the research in your dissertation, how is that going to differ from what other scholars have already published regarding the Mongol invasions of Japan?
1: Yeah, so actually, in the process of my research, I have benefited tremendously by reading and communicating with scholars who are doing the research of Mongol invasions of Japan. In particular, the work by Moros Rosabi, Thomas Colin, Charlotte von Verschel, James Delgado, as well as Japanese language works such as those by Ishii Masatoshi, Kondo sige Kazu they all resulted in a better understanding of Kublai and the Mongol invasions. In the process, I noticed that in many cases, the primary focus has largely been on the military conquests and confrontations rather than the diplomatic negotiations that happened before the battles. So by taking a look at how exactly the different regimes communicated, where diplomatic means my project tries to shed new light to understand geopolitics and diversity of Mongol invasions, In addition, I find this methodology of cross-referencing different primary sources across East Asia is highly constructive to deepen our understanding of pre-modern East Asia and world history, um, particularly for four reasons. First, the diplomatic negotiations demonstrated how the world of East Asia geopolitics functioned, which include important questions such as relations between state actors, their perspective, their separate interests, and diplomatic cultures. Second, I found the East Asian maritime framework can facilitate critical engagement with the existing scholarships preoccupation with dry land. Because as my project shows, the sea functions as a medium and a contact zone rather than isolating them. And third, the flexible and openness of the Mongol rulers exhibited in those diplomatic negotiations actually provide a broader vision for a more nuanced understanding of how Mongol empires expanded. This perspective helps us to overcome the more commonplace warfare-centric view and encourages us to pay more attention to the multiple layers and diversities used in the Mongol Empire's building and expansion. And finally, I noticed that my projects of Mongol evasions of Japan and the metaphor of flexibility have the potential to transform the way in which we will spaces, study East Asia interactions, and think about history more general. So although my project focuses on East Asia, other regions can be studied using the same or similar maritime and transnational perspective as well. For example, the territory of the Mongol Empire actually stretched from Asia to Europe in the 13th century. So how the medieval European missionaries, royal families, as well as merchants interacted and imagined the Mongol across oceans and seas, and how the modern nation state boundaries could be challenged using this perspective, for example, are another space that can be studied.
0: You just mentioned merchants, and that's something I'm very passionate about. My own research really focuses on uh, sea merchants in East Asia pretty much up to this point. And I intentionally stopped researching sea merchants at around this point because they, they disappear from primary sources. At least they're not evident to the extent that they were in prior centuries. I'm curious to ask how do you think these invasions would have impacted sea trade at this time or perhaps in the decades that followed?
1: Yes, so I think there were two things going on. So on the one hand, the Mongol invasions brought great challenges and posed great threat to Japan at the time and official communication which has being long abolished, become even more tight due to the Mongol evasions. But at the same time, on an official level, uh, the commercial exchanges were pretty lively, not only in East Asia Maritime Sphere, but also across Eurasian uh, trading network as well. Because as uh, the scholars who are examining the Mongol umpires, we know that they built one of the most advanced transport system um, during that time. So merchants could find their way pretty smooth and easy um, to travel from East Asia, say, to Europe and trade their goods um, there. And also the same apply to the opposite direction as well. But the, it's also true that compared with the historical records left by the Song period or even earlier period, maybe we don't have as many as we have expected. That relates to another question about how to identify merchants because during the time, we can see actually many Zen monks, they travel from China to Japan and spread Zen Buddhism. But at the same time, many merchants disguised themselves as monks and went to Japan as well. But actually their ultimate goal was not necessarily transforming or converting people into believing Buddhism. Rather, it's more about selling their goods and valuable stuff to the local resident as well as the nobles. But because of the official uh, relations, the very tense situation at the time between the Mongols and Japan, they could not publicly advertise their identities as merchants, and instead they opted to choose a more like safer or more accessible and acceptable identities such as buddhism monks to do such business so in such a way i still think there's quite a lot of like potential and room for studying the merchants during this time and i'm looking forward to reading your work not only this time but also before that as well
0: wow you just sparked my curiosity there i i know that since the very beginning of private trade between chinese merchants and people in japan merchants and monks were always together, hand in hand. And if, if you see evidence, perhaps you don't see so much evidence of merchants arriving in Japan just after the Mongol invasions. But if monks are arriving in Japan from China, you have to think who brought them there. And it would, to my knowledge, it, it would have almost certainly have had to have been from merchant ships, merchant monks always together when they're traveling overseas. Now, I'd like to ask you about this project. Do you see it allowing you to branch into other areas of research or other topics of interest, either while you're doing your PhD dissertation or even for projects that you plan to do afterwards?
1: Sure. So I saw there's lots of things and exciting opportunities there to be explored. Some maybe I can do on myself, but also I'm very much looking forward to collaborations with other scholars as well. So several uh, possible aspects that I see my projects can um, contribute and also have some conversation and learn from. One is when we talk about the Mongol evasions, we mentioned the usage of gunpowder in the 13th century and also commercial exchanges of that. So I think that could be a potential space where we talk about military history and also the history of science in terms of the usage of firearms, which is a very important and popular topic among scholars who are studying military history in late imperial China. But actually, we can say the exchanges of gunpowder in the 13th century might be very helpful as a framework for us to push the timeline back as well. And another interesting aspect that I wish to explore is about the legacies that the Mongol invasions left on medieval Japan as well as modern Japan, because it is very well known that the ideology of the divine wind, Kamikaze, became a very powerful ideology during the Second World War. And how does Japanese kind of use the Mongol evasions as a scenario to imagine and reimagine their positions in East Asia. It's another interesting topic that I wish I can bridge the past event with more like contemporary historical event. And the third thing is actually what uh, Greg has already been done. It's about this in addition to the official diplomatic exchanges, I'm also interested in learning how the unofficial exchanges such co- commercial exchanges uh, in East Asia work during this time. Because we know that Japan has cut off the official links with the continent for a while, but actually under the surface, even the Hojo clan was eagerly wishing to get more valuable goods from the continent as a way to show their high social status as well as making and establishing a social network. So how did that interact with the Mongol invasion? is another possible uh, direction that I might not be able to dive into due to the time limit and also my specialty, but I'm really looking forward to uh, see how Greg and other scholars contribute into that part as well.
0: Thank you. Yes, I certainly think there's a lot of room for academics to contribute some outstanding research on that topic, particularly because I think that we as scholars in the present day need to rethink how diplomacy was carried out in the past. I think we're a little bit biased in in thinking that diplomacy always had to be formal and it always had to be between clear representatives of one state with representatives of another state. And I don't think that was always the case in the history of East Asia. And I don't think it was a major change necessarily for diplomacy to be conducted in less formal auspices. Yeah, I think there's plenty of room for, for research on that topic. Now, I'd like to end this excellent, very fascinating discussion with you with a counterfactual question So not really a question so much based on historical evidence or history at all, for that matter. I would just like to pick your mind. Do you think different conditions would have allowed the Mongols to successfully invade Japan, perhaps during the first or second invasion? Or do you think there's any reason to think that a third invasion would have been more favorable to the Mongols than the first two invasions?
1: Yes. So if we compare, say, the preparations that Kubilai did when it comes to the first and second invasions, we do saw that compared with the first one happened in 1274, actually Kubilai was able to appoint more armed forces and do a better job in terms of preparing for the invasions in 1281. So if we make this hypothesis, It's likely that Kubilai, considering this trend, he should be able to be more prepared in the third one as well. But also at the same time, I wish to point it out that when we talk about the Kubilai and also Mongol rulers' military conquest in Japan, in China, in Korea, and in Southeast Asia, there were some essential differences among them, even though they are all under the category of military conquest by the Mongols. For example, in general, I observed that Kubilai's military actions towards continental regimes, such as Song China and Korea, were generally more organized in a long term and also systematic style, often accompanied by years of sieges and negotiations. And by comparison, Kubilai's invasion of Japan and other island countries in Southeast Asia were more short term based and swift. And such distinctions have not received adequate scholarly attention, but they are very important to demonstrate the variety and complexity of kublai strategies in empire building and expansion. Because when it comes to the geopolitical situation, we know that Japan was quite far away from the continent and so were those many different regimes in the Southeast Asia as well. So Kubilai did a very rational calculation about the cost and gains when he decided what exactly he wanted from those regimes. It's, that it's not necessarily population or territory occupation, but sometimes it's more about a certain kind of resource. In this case, the sulfur for Japan And also sometimes the acknowledgement of his universal rulership from those three regimes mattered more than just directly sending long-term based troops. So in that way, actually, we can see they are all called military conquest, but there were some varieties and differences among them. I still don't have an exact answer. If Kublai would really launch the third one, considering his interest in Japan was not necessarily a complete occupation of the island and by years of sages as he did to the Song. But it is very likely that he would continue. And actually, we do have the evidence that even after the first invasions, Kubila continued to send diplomatic envoys to Japan, which shows his flexible attitude and also his different interests that he had in Japan compared with the Song. So I hope that answers your question.
0: Yes, it certainly does. My own take is that It might have been difficult, even under the best of circumstances, just because it's one thing to conquer a territory and it's another thing to rule it. So we still don't really have any idea about whether or not the Mongols would have been able to effectively rule Japan. But we'll never know that. That will remain a great mystery forevermore. And so I'd like to just end this podcast with a bit of a plug for a project that you have in the works, and that is you are translating Yamauchi Shinji's book on the sulfur exchange between Japan and China, and you are doing so with Dr. Joan Piggott, who is your advisor at USC. So I think in the future, you perhaps will talk about this topic with Joan Piggott, and I'm very much looking forward to listening, and I hope everybody who's listening now can tune in for that podcast as well. So we'll just end there for today. And thank you so much, Lena, for coming. I really enjoyed talking with you today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Take care.